Thanks for listening. A huge shout out to Scott Beecher for doing this podcast. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. This is supposed to be the intro. Okay, my Ben, are you trying to put me in the movie Tenant right now? I think that's what Ben's trying to do. And and honestly, I'm still trying to figure out what the heck happened in that movie. So if anyone has a good explanation, that would be awesome. But back to the show here. I think what Ben was trying to demonstrate here is this idea of putting the cart before the horse. And if you aren't familiar, we actually have a pretty big international audience that aren't used to U.S. idioms. Putting the cart before the horse is an expression used to suggest something is done in the wrong order, i.e. I'm putting the end of the podcast before the intro. In B2B SaaS, there's plenty of folks who try to buck conventional norms and discover a solution before actually uncovering a problem. Anywhere you look, you'll find hucksters and charlatans looking to profit off the very idea of blockchain this and AI that and don't even get me started on NFTs. While many are well-meaning and some are truly virtuous, it seems a bit silly to sell a fix without first discovering what's broken. And no one is more familiar with this concept than Scott Beechick, partner at Norwest Venture Partners. He has founded multiple companies over his 20-year career, as well as provided advisory and investing services to numerous startups. Scott has seen history repeat itself time and time again, so if you're looking for wisdom to avoid putting the cart before the horse, listen on to what Scott has to say. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Scott Beechick dishes out on product market fit. He talks about enterprise being SaaS by nature, solving SaaS infrastructure problems, the leaky bucket of B2B and B2C, and the one responsibility CEOs cannot forget. So maybe like name, uh, company, role, and what you guys do. Yep, Scott Bichuk, Norwest Venture Partners, partner on our enterprise investment team. No, it's awesome. And your career has kind of been mostly like enterprise B2B so far, right? A little bit of consumer in there, but yeah, it's mainly been the B2B front. Yeah, I think B2B is, well, first of all, I get pretty excited about the idea of powering businesses, yeah. but a lot of companies nowadays, you know, you see, you always hear B2B to C. And so that's actually, if you look at my portfolio and the things that I've invested in, a lot of companies that are actually ser- our customers are serving consumers mm. which I think is a cool it's a cool way to kind of wrap a lot of different type, types of technology yeah that's really interesting and do you think that's just because you know we, we used to be all like oh this is a really cool piece of technology like let's find an application for it or hey like there's just nothing there so it doesn't matter how clunky it is and now it's like no it has to be good and has to be used by many folks like is that kind of the the effect that you're seeing <laughs> so you're getting at a, I think a pretty interesting topic, which is, you know, do you, how do you build companies? How do you build successful companies no matter what they're doing? I mean, a lot of companies will come at it with the idea that, hey, we built a technology and we're sure that there's going to be a company out there, there's going to be maybe a consumer out there who really gets excited about this, and we're just going to keep on developing this until we figure out who that is. And that's a pretty dangerous way to build a company. Now, not to say there haven't been some great companies built like that, but usually I I look at companies who are coming at it from a more, I don't know, maybe you could call it just just pragmatic or uh, just kind of traditional you know, business model sense, which is, hey, we know that there's a lot of pain in mm. a certain part of the industry. We, we realize that this industry or this market segment or this group of people are experiencing a tremendous amount of trouble in whatever type of business they're trying to transact. It could be some friction in a process or it could be a fundamental disruption needed in an industry. And so if you work backwards from that and you say, okay, well, what are the technologies that we'd need in order to build that? And then who are the technologists that we need to hire? 
in order to build the best version of that technology, that usually leads you to a better outcome. I, totally. At least I've found. Well, that's what, and that's what's kind of interesting, right? Because like the first wave of like SaaS and software was very, we just had this technology and needed to apply it, and now it's like market. You know, it's that product market going to market product, and it's all semantic, but it's like super interesting. And, and do you think like that switch? Why do you think that switch exists? Like, is it just because there's just so much software and like product out there? Is it that there's so much competition, which is kind of a function of that? Like, why why do you think we're like focusing on market more now? I think it's because if we're talking, you mentioned SaaS, so I'll just have to I'm, I'm a key in on that. Sure. SaaS was you know in the in the mid to late '90s, it was so new and it was so different that the technology itself became the innovation, mm. and you could take just about anything that was on the market and turn it into a cloud so- uh, cloud piece of software. And in some way, the market would view that as the disruption, the innovation. But that's not the case anymore, right? I mean, every pretty much every enterprise software company being built today is SaaS by DNA, by nature. I mean, that's how they're, that's usually how they're born. Now, there's, obviously, there's some, uh, you know, outliers out there that make sense to be on-prem, but I, so, so I think we've gone through the transition now. It's been you know 20 plus years, and now we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, what are the problems? What are the markets where the problems exist? And then there's this assumption that you're gonna build a multi-tenant cloud uh, solution, and actually that's changing too. You know, Not all great cloud companies, not all great SaaS companies are being built multi-tenant. There's other reasons for that. As well, so I think I think the technology is sort of happening because it's it's necessary to happen. But now we're focusing more on what are the markets and the problems that we need to solve, and then you know other new innovative things come marching along to create the confusion, right? So you throw AI, you sprinkle a little AI in there, yeah. and, the, and the market <laughs> and the industry goes, "Whoa, this sounds yeah. pretty cool!" Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, this is what we need. We need we need machine learning. Yeah. And you say, and then another guy over in the corner, he's like, "Oh yeah, we need deep learning." Everybody's like nodding their heads, like, "Yeah, we do deep. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be yeah, deep is cool, you know." But the reality is that, and you know this, right? Most yeah. of these companies who take that approach are taking the backwards approach, which is, "Hey, we are jumping on this technological bandwagon, and yeah, we think we know what problems we're solving, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll figure that out." Yeah. And again, we, we end up in the same place sure. as where we were 20 years ago. Do you think, I mean, not to age you, but you've been in the game for a bit. You know, you, uh, you've worked at, you know, a number of, you know, companies. Do you, do you think that, like, these companies that you've worked at, you know, especially the B2B ones, like, is it is it something where you were able to ride that wave and then, like, transition, right? Because if you think about, you know, Codebees, like Salesforce, like some of these other companies that you, you've been at, they rode that wave of that first, like, oh, this is a technology. Like, the no software movement was basically like, oh, cool, now it's in the cloud. Which now we look back and we're like, that's that's stupid, right? Like you know, like you couldn't do that marketing campaign today. Like, is that something where like we've just developed this, or is it something where, you know, you just couldn't build a company like that today? So a lot to unpack there. So yeah, kind of respond and we'll edit that question completely out. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of companies today that would not have been possible if we didn't have the assumption that the cloud was here and it was ubiquitous. And there are certain companies today that I don't think could exist if the public cloud providers like, you know, AWS and uh, GCP and Azure, if those platforms didn't exist, those pieces of infrastructure, there are a lot of companies now that it just would have been too costly or too time consuming to even get to market. Yeah. So yeah, I think a lot of the 
a lot of the assumptions that we made, you know, 10, 15 years ago around what it meant to build a cloud company, we take those things for granted now because the building blocks are there. And that's what's cool. I always talk about you know, new companies. If I was starting a fresh uh, cloud, enterprise cloud startup today, I would think about it completely differently from a technology standpoint and how to build the, the first version of the product. Because now I, I've actually got these great high level uh, services, microservices and other high level services that I can call and you know I'm oversimplifying but the idea of putting things together like puzzle pieces or blocks to create an application is very possible today. Um, I, I mean you saw the first instances of this uh, very early on, you know, service-oriented architecture in the early 2000s. I mean, this was, you know, everybody was talking about it. Nobody knew what it meant, and most applications weren't really there yet, but the concept was right. And then along come, uh, you know, companies like Heroku, and they said, okay, we're going to abstract this thing out, and we're going to provide a lot of out-of-the-box capabilities like security, right, or workflow, or profiles and permissions. And, you know, startup entrepreneurs' brains just kind of melted because they're like, oh, well, now I don't have to build all that. Yeah. Now I can actually just plug it together. And yeah, it might not be the product we end up with five, ten years from now, but it can certainly get us to market a heck of a lot faster. Totally. And I think that, may, I think that, was, a, that was a major breakthrough. Do you find that that, like to play devil's advocate, right? Because like I'm on board and like, you know, I, I totally get it, you know, in terms of like how powerful that can be because you and I could start a company literally right now and by the end of the day, spin up a server, spin up a website, start driving some traffic and, you know, validating those concepts that we had and even probably get some, you know, customers by maybe not today, but this week, right? Do you think though that that's leading to, you know, people not being as thoughtful as they need to be with what they're building, right? Because you mentioned AI before, right? We found out that if you just mention AI in your marketing, it can actually boost willingness to pay by about 20%. <laughs> um, now, retention is a whole other story, but like yeah. you can actually boost that perception, right? So you have these, you know, the, the, the classic Steve Jobs, like, oh, that's not a product, it's a feature. You know, you have all these features being built out, and everyone is thinking, oh, this is like the next big company, even though, you know, that company is going to be obsolete soon. Like, wh where do you find that balance, or is that okay, that's an unintended consequence, but it's okay because, you know, those will fail and there'll still be more progress, you know, in the wider market. You know, this is, history repeats itself. Sure. And I think that, you know, just like, you know, I'm not going to get into politics right now, but <laughs> politics repeats itself in the history there. And I think there's a lot to learn from what's happened over the last 20 years of internet uh, enterprise software. Um, you know, you mentioned AI, and AI is definitely one of those bubbles where you know you had a lot of companies just seeking this technology, trying to figure out, okay, how is that going to transform our industry, right? Because AI is it's been connected with the term transformation, right? And so you you can even start to project forward, and you start to hear terms like blockchain, right? Enterprise blockchain, right? Uh, well, the technology is very cool. There's no question about that. Um, there's one good application for it today, and that's currency. And some would argue that it's not even that great of an application. I was just about to say. Right? <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. and that's fair. That's a fair criticism. Uh, but a lot of companies, especially in industries like financial services and these highly regulated, highly, you know, high levels of security requirements and things like that, supply chain, they're just jumping on it. And they're jumping on it. They're, they're building big teams of developers and technologists to try to figure out how do we apply this blockchain stuff to 
what we're, what we're doing at our, our company and how is that gonna help advance us and leapfrog versus our competitors. And again, history is repeating itself one more time. It's too early, no one understands what problems they're trying to solve. I shouldn't say no one. There, sure. there are some actual ex good examples out there, but it's still riddled with the same challenges in its own way. So for example, when you know, machine learning and uh, you know, any type of AI first started coming out, you started to see companies attempt to put it into production. They had performance issues. Uh, you know, we didn't have you know, the GPU clusters that we have today. Uh, we just didn't have a means to build uh, data pipelines because no one knew exactly what that meant. Data lakes weren't big enough to, to handle all the data. And so it was the cart before the horse. We're in the same place right now with blockchain where security, performance, privacy, these issues have not been solved yet. And so if you wanna build an enterprise piece of software built with some form of private or public blockchain, you're gonna run into those issues. It's kinda of like, you know, it's kinda of like, oh, I wanna build a highway, but you forgot that there's a city in your way. It's like, okay, well, we gotta solve a few infrastructure problems first on the network level and you know, level, you know, the lower levels of the, uh, the stack before we can actually go and build these things. So when you're you know, advising companies, you have portfolio companies, like when you're talking to them or if you were to start a new company, like how do you know where to apply that stuff, right? Because like blockchain, like super sexy, AI was super sexy, machine learning, super sexy. And yes, there's, there's potentially billions of infinite you know, applications of it. And some of us, you know, we jump on the bandwagon and it fails. Some of us, we don't jump on the bandwagon because we're like, oh, we'll wait for that to figure it out. You know, how do you determine how to apply it? And, and I guess the kernel of this is how do you determine what to build, right, just in general? We kind of touched on this in the beginning. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if we had the answers, uh, either as investors or our entrepreneurs or anybody in, you know, in this city right now, I think we'd, that, that would be the holy grail. Sure, you know? sure, sure. We, and we, if, we, if we knew the answer. But the way I look at it is there's nothing wrong with focusing on a technology that you believe has a tremendous amount of potential, but as, as long as you enter in, into the context of which I am going to be a research lab, okay? There's a big difference, and I think there, there's been great companies who have actually been acquired and been built where they started as research labs. They said, we, want, we know we've got a great technology on our hands, we know it's not ready for prime time, but when it is, we got a whole slew of different use cases and ideas. So we're gonna spend the first year, two, three years, how long, however long it takes, building and advancing this technology, and then we're going to deploy it in a number of different use cases, which we'll figure out as we go. That's a tough way to build a company. It's very expensive, it's very risky, um, but when we look at companies, if, if I were to make an investment in blockchain, which I haven't, yeah. um, I would probably look at the companies who are solving those fundamental infrastructure and network problems. The problems around performance, the problems around security, the problems around privacy of data. These are, if we can't solve those, then we can't get to that next step, which is actually, let's, let's put this into production. And so that's, if, if I were to build a company, that's probably where I'd start if it had to be somewhere uh, in the blockchain room. Well, it's kind of like there's two mental models there, right? There's cutting edge technology 
you know, that's the path of what you just described, like figuring out the infrastructure, et cetera. And then there's the, you know, this sounds bad, but it's, you know, I think a good thing like any other SaaS company, right? You know, starting with the customer rather than the technology and understanding the technology so you can apply it properly. Because I think that something that you've written a lot about has been, you know, the, the leaky bucket problem, right? You know, customer success where a lot of us, we get hyped on, you know, spinning up that server, getting the website up, and then all of a sudden we start acquiring customers and we can brute force our way because there's just so many things we have now to acquire customers and then all of a sudden the leaky bucket starts happening. So, like, where, where do you think that, how big is that problem? Like, is that the problem with a business, especially in subscriptions? Or is it something that, you know, hey, it's on the horizon that we need to start fixing? This is a bit of a hot button for me because I've spent so much of my career thinking about uh, how to build subscription businesses that have staying power. And the thing about the leaky, I love the leaky bucket analogy, by the way, because it, it very, very accurately describes what's happening in any SaaS startup, whether it's B2B or B2C. Um, the water entering the top, of course, are that's the new business that you're bringing in. And when you've launched your, your first product and things are going gangbusters, you're just pouring as much water as you possibly can into that bucket. And things are looking really good because it's filling up. But because of the nature of it being a subscription business, sooner or later you're gonna to have to renew with those customers. Might be monthly, nowadays annual is very common, maybe every, so, so after the first year, suddenly the water starts leaking out the bottom, or it starts leaking out multiple holes on the sides too. But because so many companies focus on this idea of growth hacking, yeah. Right. That's that's like a that's a very, very popular term. And I understand why it's cool. You know, growth hacking is cool. It's like, how can I how can I use technology and use psychology to just get everyone excited about what we're building and get as many new customers on the product as we possibly can? The problem is that if you haven't built a customer success function that keeps track of the health of those customers that you're pouring in the top of the bucket, even before you launch the product, you're already too late. Sure. And what that means is that you probably, most, I, I always advise any of my companies, whether again, B2B or B2C, build a customer success function, make it part of your DNA before you even launch your product. And wow. I mean, general rule of thumb, could be six months ahead, could be a year ahead, just depends on how complex the service and the product is sure. that you're gonna be launching. And the reason is because customer success has to be part of every single motion that you take as a company. And it's not just, oh, I'm gonna hire you know, Molly because she is awesome at customer success. It's, we need to be thinking like customer success across the entire company. So every engineer has to be thinking, how great is this product going to be to use? What's the user experience gonna be like? What does a healthy customer look like? And how are we gonna measure it? Measuring that is a whole nother ball game because it's one thing to pick up the phone and uh, you know I'm, I'm your uh, customer success manager and I say, hey, just wanted to check in. You know, it looks like your renewal's coming up in three months. Just want to make sure you're connected with the right product people and the right you know, uh, account people. Just make sure you're happy. And by, it might be too late by that time because what you don't realize is six months before that, nobody was logging in. There wasn't a single person using the product, or maybe just a few, you know, in other words, the trend was down. And so instrumenting your, your, your SaaS product to make sure that customer engagement remains high, hopefully it's increasing over time, and then reaching out proactively to make sure that your customers are getting the most they, they can out of their product early on is 
absolutely critical to building a successful long-term SaaS company. And as I mentioned before, you can't do that after you've launched your product. It's too late. It's just, you know, you'll be scrambling and you just won't, that won't become part of the heart and the soul of your company and it needs to be. It's like the, it's like the medicine, right? Like it's, we don't want the medicine, you know, we just want like the sugar or something like that. I don't know if my metaphor is working here, but it's like, uh, it's like one of those things where, you know, we never do the thing that is actually going to help us and then customer success, once you hire them, typically gets blamed for everything. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, and there's a lot of different areas of SaaS companies that are, you know, some would view as the medicine. One of the most important parts of any SaaS company is the DevOps team. And, you know, most engineers you talk to are like, hey, I don't want any part of that, man. That's, that's going to keep me up at 3 o'clock in the morning. The pager's going to be going off because a ser- part of the service is down or the whole thing's down. I don't want to be put. That is arguably one of the most important functions within any SaaS business because you own the cloud. It's your cloud, right? And your customers are counting on your cloud. It's not like you're, you know, one of your customers can, you know, has root access to, uh, you know, one of your servers and can go in there and re- you know, restart the database. That, that's all up to you, which is de- what's why DevOps and customer success actually are a little bit analogous because if, you're not, if your service isn't amazingly reliable, and then, of course, you tie that to product and to UX, so it create the best user experience, and then it actually performs well. So it ties into engineering. That's why I'm saying customer success is everybody. And it, it, it's, that's why we need to think, we need to build companies that are always thinking like customer success experts. That's interesting. That's super interesting. Do you think that, like, because you guys don't do a lot of seed deals, right? You, you end up like going into, you know, that are more established like companies when you invest. Is that something you look for, like specifically? Like, I mean, churn is probably the, the leading indicator of good or bad customer success, right? But, you know, is that something that you guys research when you go into a company? I mean, yeah. I mean, we, by the way, we, you're right. We do a lot of later stage deals, but we also do early stage deals. In fact, the most recent deal that I did was a seed deal. So, I got that wrong, sorry. No, no, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's fine. You know, I've, I've done a seed, an A, B, C, and a D, and then I partnered on a, on a growth equity deal. So yeah. kind of all over the map. I think the, the nice thing about being able to be stage agnostic is we can, we can invest in any of these asset classes, choose, choosing companies that we think are the best companies at whatever stage they are. And to answer your question, yeah, customer success, sometimes we will invest in a company who's underinvested in customer success. That doesn't mean it's a terrible company that's never going to have a great outcome. It just means we need to put a lot more fuel on, on the CS fire, yeah. and we can help do that. That's cool. A couple of last questions. Uh, these are, we ask everyone these, they're a little, not in the same vein we've been asking, but um, what's the, you know, what's something you struggled with in your career that you overcame? I would say one of the hardest things that I've ever experienced myself hmm. and was becoming a first-time CEO. I was in my mid-20s and I was presented with the opportunity to co-found a company. And what do you do when I was a former, I was a developer, I was a software developer who had no exposure to finance, to operations, to customer success, didn't even know what that was, uh, to you know, things like customer support. Um, I was building low-level device drivers, okay? <laughs> I love it. And so you get, you, all of a sudden you make a transition, and we all, you know, again, there's a lot of energy around being an entrepreneur. It's, it's hey, you know, this is gonna, we're gonna change the world, and we are gonna build the coolest product, and customers are gonna come buy it. So I didn't even mention sales. 
uh, when I, the things that I didn't understand. So one of the things I wanted to do in my career was, first of all, whether I liked it or not, I made a lot of mistakes uh, as a first-time CEO. And so I tried to surround myself with advisors and other board members and other management team members who were a lot more experienced than I was. And that's, so that's, that's, the, that's the first thing that you can do to try to mitigate that. Second thing is go hire a better CEO than, than sure, yourself. Sure, yeah. But but I would say that I would say like the struggle of not knowing and being where the buck stops, being in the hot seat as a as a first time CEO, I think that's one of the most difficult things that you can do because it's not just the responsibility to make your customers successful and happy, but it's all about your employees. Yeah. You gotta treat your employees right, you've gotta make everyone feel you gotta have create an inclusive uh, culture, uh, you got to create an open and transparent culture, and all that stuff. You know, we talk about that all the time, and it seems obvious and it seems easy. But when when you got fifty seven things happening all at the same time, it's not straightforward. You you lose track of things, yeah. and so one of the things I always wanted to be able to do was to take all the experiences that I had growing up as. Uh, you know, both a software developer, but also an entrepreneur uh, myself, uh, later as an executive in a large, highly scaled company, was take all of the good, the bad, and the ugly and share that with a, a group, in this case a portfolio, of fast-growing companies. Sure. Because I, I can really empathize with what it feels like to be a first-time, or sometimes not even a first-time yeah. CEO. It's different every time around, but there's, there's common patterns. And so I wanted to be able to share and help those companies avoid a lot of the potholes yeah. that, that I fell into along the way and also leverage a lot of things that worked really well. Um, yeah. some, in the early days, maybe we got a little lucky on a few things. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Later on, you know, I was learning from the more, uh, more experienced uh, uh, and, and I just picked up a lot of good habits along the way that I wanted to replicate. That's cool. And so that's, that's probably the most challenging thing is being a first-time CEO. Yeah. Well, you can't be a first-time CEO anymore, so that's good. Yeah, that's good. A huge shout-out to Scott for doing this podcast. Now you have what it takes to get to product market fit as that outstanding operator. Today, we talked about enterprise being SaaS by nature, solving SaaS infrastructure problems, the leaky bucket of B2B and B2C, and the one responsibility CEOs cannot forget. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you're listening and watching. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease this podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 